This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 74. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Paul Lunsis, president of Lunsis Asset Management LLC. I first saw Mr. Lunsis speak at the first annual Microcap Club Leadership Summit in 2016, where he did a presentation discussing his investing strategy and the idea of differential insights. While Paul's focus is not really microcaps, following his presentation, I thought he could provide insight, tools, and strategies that can help investors no matter what asset or assets they focus on. The goal for this episode is to learn more about how Mr. Lunsis utilizes differential insights to assist in his investing philosophy and the many lessons learned from his vast investing experiences. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 74, and I would like to welcome Paul Lunsis, president of Lunsis Asset Management, to the program. Paul, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's great to have you on, and again, thank you. I know you're incredibly busy, so uh, let's dive right in. Uh, let's let's start with your background. You know, when and why did you get your start in finance and investing? You know, Robert, it's kind of interesting. I was 12, 13 years old, and I had read about Mr. Buffett um, buying the, getting involved with the Washington Post. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, about 60 miles northwest of Philadelphia, outside of Reading. Um, and I'd read about Mr. Buffett, and I started studying him. I'd go to the library and see what I could find out about him and, and, and so forth. It's not like today where everything's available. And um, that really started my curiosity and, and path on the investment front. Mm-hmm. And from there, and from there um, I went to a, a Catholic high school to play football. I graduated. I got into some terrific schools and um, didn't have the resources, so I went to another terrific school. I went to Albright College locally, and I commuted. It took me eight years to graduate. I worked uh, full-time, really part-time every weekend and holiday, but ultimately I was working almost full-time, even though I was considered a part-time employee with no benefits. It was a great opportunity at the hospital there to learn and grow, and I, I did that for eight years. I graduated when I was 26, Robert. And um, when I graduated, I was looking for opportunities in money management, but I, I didn't really know how to, how to go about it. And I had read the value guys, Chuck Royce, Michael Price. I had been an investor in many some of their funds, Bill Ruain, Sequoia, and others. And, and so at that time, um, I was running around the track, and I thought I had three options. One, to go get a, a finance degree. I had a finance degree, go get a CPA 
um, and an accounting degree so I could go sit for my CPA. The second was go to a bank management training program and move into the trust department. And the third, I was running around the track and I ran into an old buddy. And he said, Paul, we have a, co- a consulting firm here um, on the east side of town heading towards Philly that does competitive analysis and M&A work and so forth for Fortune 500, Fortune 1,000 companies. His name was Mike Rhodes, terrific guy. And I knew him. His father had made me a quarterback when I was a little guy. And so I, I lost touch with him, Robert, because I went to Catholic school after eighth grade, and he stayed in the public school. And so I did that, and that was a real blessing because I worked with marvelous people, um, they were all incredibly talented, had incredible degrees, technical degrees from many of the best universities, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, etc. And they had MBAs from many of the best schools, um, Wharton and others, uh, Columbia. And so I did that for almost three years, and that was a really special time for me because I really developed um, the capability with a lot of smart people helping me and working very hard to analyze and evaluate businesses and their competitive strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And we did competitive analysis for many Fortune 1000 companies. And so I honed, I developed and honed my skills there. I did it for almost three years. And then I said to myself, I think I have a skill set here. Mm-hmm. And I picked up the phone and I called 10, 15 value managers. I called Chuck Royce, Michael Price. Um, I spoke to Gladys Kaiser, I think it was, who was Mr. Buffett's assistant. Um, um, a ton of them. George Michaelis out in L.A., Mario Gabelli, Bill Ruane. I spoke to John Shapiro at Chieftain. And, you know, many of the great value guys. And they were all really good to me. Um, Michael Price and Chuck Royce interviewed me. Michael Price had just moved to Short Hills from um, New York City. He said, Paul, I wish you'd have called me five, six months ago. I would have hired you. He was really good to me. They all gave me their time, and ultimately Chuck Royce um, and his partner Tom Ebright hired me, and that's how I got into the business in uh, February of 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there for two and a half years, I re- two years or so, and I really enjoyed it. And then I, I went on and, and joined Bill Ruane at Ruane Kniff. Um, Bill, Bill Ruane, Rick Kniff, Bob Goldfarb, and Carly Kniff, and I was there almost a decade. I was a partner for six or seven years there. And then, um, Robert, I started my own shop. Mm-hmm. So I know I have a feeling that some of my questions that I have coming up, some of your answers will be inspired based on that experience. But I just have to quickly follow up. What would you say, you know, when you were first reaching out to the Chuck Royces and Bill Ruanes of the world, you know, and, and then when you went on to work with them, you know, what was the number one thing that you took away from that working experience? The Chuck... Chuck Royce was unique um, in the sense that, first of all, he's a terrific person, Mm -hmm. and he was very, very good to me and very good to many others, but he was very good to me, gave me the opportunity, gave me enormous freedom, and Chuck's unique in the sense that not only is he a really outstanding money manager, Robert, he's a very, very smart businessman, Mm -hmm. and those are two skills that are normally not, do not normally coexist with a lot of people in the business. Mm -hmm. So he's a very smart money manager analyzing businesses and industries, and he's a very, very smart businessman. And so I learned a lot from that area, in in both of those areas from Chuck. He obviously focused on small caps, so it gave me a wonderful window into the small cap world, studying lots and lots of small companies, 
digging into many of his larger holdings, Russ Berry, Kimball, and many others, International Aluminum, and a whole host of others. So it was a great experience there from Chuck. But, you know, those are the primary things I learned from Chuck, and, he, and, and really being a high-quality person. And then Ruane Kniff and Goldfarb, um, the people there, Bill was an extraordinary person. Rick Kniff um, and Carly Kniff and Bob, all four of them really touched me in their own unique way, each with a unique set of personalities and talents and skills. And I spent a lot of time with Carly. I miss her every day. She passed away in January of 05. She was brilliant, very smart. We did a lot of the analytical work uh, together. I would really use her as a sounding board. And then Bill, Rick, and Bob were very open. I dealt directly with all of them, Robert, because I did a lot of the due diligence on many of the portfolio uh, ideas that, that we were looking at. Many of the ideas came from them, and I did a lot of the due diligence, um, you know, generating what I call differential insights that we can talk about later. But the big, the big thing from Ruane was really try and understand what you're buying. Look out three, four, five, six, seven years. Focus not only on the businesses, their moats, the business models, the industry dynamics, the competitive strengths and weaknesses, but also spend a lot of time understanding the people. Mm -hmm. And the final point I would make is they were really, all of them, were really good people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the story that I've recounted, Robert, um, when I went and interviewed, I first uh, met Bob Goldfarb and then Rick Kniff and then Greg Alexander, all extraordinary investors and great people. I went back a week later at Bob's, you know, uh, request to meet with Carly and Bill. And our second son at the time was born in Greenwich when I worked for Chuck, and he had a needed open-heart surgery. And um, my first interview with Bill, I was trying to get a job. And um, Bill spent 85% of the conversation talking about my son, our son. And I told him, you know, he, he needed open-heart surgery, he had an atrial septal defect, the hole in the upper chamber, two chambers. And um, he um, loved that I did a lot of research. I wouldn't let anybody touch him unless Aldo Castaneda at Boston Children's trained him. And he trained Bill Norwood at CHOP in Philly, Children's Hospital of Philly. And Kelly and I went and interviewed him. And um, at the end of the meeting, um, Bill said to me, he said, you know, Paul, I've read your work. I really like it. And then he went right back to my son, our son, and he said, um, you know, what's an operation like that cost? I said, Mr. Wayne, I have no idea. He said, whatever it costs, Paul, I'll pay for it. And I looked at him, and I this is my first meeting, Robert. And I looked at him, and I said, Mr. Wayne, you haven't hired me yet. And he looked at me and says, I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I know this sounds, you can't make this stuff up. Mm. They, they were extraordinary people. I grew very close to all of them, in particular Rick Kniff and Carly. Um, and I wouldn't be where I'm at without all those people and many others going back to strategic analysis, the consulting firm, and Chuck and Tom Ebright, and all the people at Ruane, just, they were really, so the real, the real crux to all this is, as great as all of them were, Chuck, Bob, Bill, Rick, Carly, Greg Alexander, um, all of them, as great as they were as investors, they were all even better people. Wow, that's an incredible story. If I, if you don't mind me asking, how's your son doing today? I appreciate that. He's doing great. He's 28 years old. He's going to trade school. He spent four years in the Army. He spent a year in Iraq, a year in North Korea, two years in, uh, in Kansas City, in the Kansas, in the state of Kansas, um, at one of the Army barracks there. And, 
he's doing really, really well. He's never had any any issues, thank God. And so, um, you know, really, really thankful. And I might add, not only that, but Chuck, when Chuck, um, and it was very hard leaving Chuck, um, but when I left, Chuck actually paid insurance for Cobra to make sure that they wouldn't say it was a pre-existing condition. So I had both companies, you know, and, and these are things, Robert, I'm raising this because people don't know these things. Mm-hmm. You know, they think of them as great investors and very successful, but they're terrific people as well. No, I think it's, I'm so happy that you're saying this right now. I'm almost, I'm, and, and I just want to say, you know, thank from all of us here at Planet Microcap, and I think I can speak for our audience too, you know, we thank your son for his service and, you know, uh, that's just, wow, that, that's an incredible story. I mean, my much. gosh. So, you know, I, I, I just want to talk about personally, but, you know, I know that my audience really wants to hear some more of your, <laughs> some more about your experience and your, your, uh, how you also approach the market. So, you know, uh, to do a quick, uh, divergence back, uh, you know, I, I know, you know, this is a micro cap, uh, uh, podcast. We talk mostly with micro caps and I know that's not your, your, your main focus. However, you know, I, I was just curious, you know, do, do you have any experience while you were getting started in your investing career, uh, that, that you think most microcap investors have also, uh, experienced? You know, I, I went through the, the, the books years ago in the seventies and eighties, um, you know, the pink sheets and I did all that and, you know, very thinly traded stocks. I did all that, the S and P sheets, I did all that, and I'm sure some of the microcap people did as well. Um, and I also tried to understand, you know, whether they were many of them weren't public, obviously, but I also tried to understand a lot of local businesses. Mm. I, you know, I grew up working in the restaurant business. My parents were Greek immigrants, which is pretty typical. And you know, I'd think to myself, you know, what restaurants here are really good? How do they make money? Do they make money at the bar? Do they make money in the kitchen? And my dad was a bartender for. 40 plus years and he would explain the economics of buying a bottle of Jack Daniels or 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 scotch a particular scotch Glenfiddich or whatever Seagram's and and he would go over this is what we paid for the bottle um, and this is what we could charge per drink and it was incredibly profitable so I tried to think a little bit in numbers even back then and and get a sense and I'm sure some of the microcap investors did and and so I would try and read as much as I could and just learn about as much as I could not only just the financials though I always tried to understand the qualitative mm. what's unique what's different about the business and and the reason I did that Robert is the numbers are, are really important and we do lots of screens here at Lounsus Asset Management but the problem is the numbers tell you the past and you're investing in the future and so the numbers alone aren't enough you got to dig beyond the numbers. And that was the beauty of doing the consulting work prior to get in, getting into money management. We really spent a lot of time not only initially understanding the numbers and the industry dynamics and so forth, but really understanding the people, understanding, you know, will this business be around in three, four, five years? And that's really become relevant today with, you know, the way things are being uh, disrupted. And so... You know, all those things, I think, apply, whether you're a microcap investor, and there's some unique challenges in the microcap space, um, the survivability of the company, dependent on, you know, a few people, one or two people, or, you know, just very few, dependent on a few uh, products or services, dependent on only one or two, maybe, or less geographies. So there are unique challenges that microcaps face, but I also think some of that 
you know, by doing both the quantitative and the qualitative, you can, even with small, small microcaps, reduce some of that risk. But there's always going to be more risk in those than there will in a, in a, in typically in a one, two, three, four billion dollar enterprise that has greater geographic diversity, greater product and service diversity, more talented people, et cetera. But I would say this, that's changing. And just because you're a billion or two billion or eight billion today in either revenue or market cap, you're, it's so challenging today in every business. And those businesses now are facing, even with all those greater you know, capabilities, they're facing challenges that microcaps face as well with being disrupted. Interesting. So, okay, I was going to ask another question, but I have to follow up on that because that's really interesting. You just opened up a whole new bag of worms there, you know, so what, what, <laughs> like what, what type of challenges do you, have you been seeing then? Well, a, a good example of that is um, I, I, Bill was on the board, Bill Ruane was on the board of the Washington Post, and I, I had the privilege of doing some projects for people at the Post, Alan Spoon, Don Graham, just others, just great, great people. And um, in, in doing so, I really began to study, uh, during my time at Ruane, the newspaper business. And I think, I think, Robert, back in the early 2000s, 03, 04, 05, I think uh, some of the publications I read, the, the newspaper business was about $50 billion in revenue, not, not dissimilar for some of the broadcasting, the size of the broadcasting industry. And about $30 billion of that was runner press advertising, and then $20 billion was classifieds. Help Wanted was $10 billion, and $5 billion was auto, and $5 billion was house, housing and so forth. And so it was $50 billion. And I think I read recently... Um, that it was a ten to twelve to fourteen billion dollar industry today. It's just been so disintermediated. Um, it's so much easier to buy a car, new car, used car. You don't you don't even think of going to the newspaper. You can do it on the internet. The same with Help Wanted, with LinkedIn and and Monster and all these others. Indeed, you know I could go on and on and on. And that that was one example. And what that did for me. Back in oh, oh, back during that time, it made me start thinking to myself, what's going to happen to a lot of these other industries? Mm-hmm. And so one of the examples is I really followed cable. Uh, and we had owned Cablevision for a long time. We thought they had some unique assets, Madison Square Garden and uh, Knicks Rangers and some uh, some cable programming stations, AMC, Bravo, and some others. And so I said to myself, well, what's going to happen to cable? So one of the things I did many, many years ago, it's probably 10 years ago, 11, 12 years ago, I went out to the National Association of Broadcasters Conference in Las Vegas. And I said, you know, what's going to happen to linear TV? And I met Jason Kilar, who was running Hulu at the time, far, you know, far earlier than what most people even knew. And it was owned by several of the larger players. And I spent time with him. I met with Dimitri Shapiro at VO, at VO um, which was a, a similar player to Hulu that Michael Eisner had invested in. And I was trying to figure out what's happening here. And what I realized was um, cable, the video product, is really going to – I didn't know how it would evolve, Robert. I'm just not that smart. But I knew it was really going to change. And today it's all visible. And that was all stimulated. Part of why I went to the NAB conference was our daughter Lauren – would come home from a football game on a Friday, and we had a few TVs in the house, but we only had one DVR, and that was in our our living room. And she didn't want to come watch her programs there, so she would go up to her room and put on her Dell laptop and watch Hulu. And that's what 
showed me that children, younger kids, millennials, whatever, they would rather give up quality and size of a picture for convenience. And so she would watch it on this little, you know, uh, monitor, uh, laptop, uh, computer monitor, and I started thinking to myself, things are really changing. And so all those things, and those are qualitative, they stimulated my thought, I went to the NAB, and as a result, now how does that translate into the future? I simply, and that doesn't mean I'm right, I wouldn't go near any of the cable programming um, uh, companies. I just thought that their model was at risk, and I wouldn't touch any of the cable companies because I thought the video product was really at risk. Um, and, and so that's how I tr you translate just general observations and then thinking about how things change and how they get disrupted. Um, and now it's really coming to the fore. And again, the cable companies, you know, people who have invested in them, you know, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying I'm not comfortable. And I think their broadband product is very powerful, with the exception of places where there's Fios from Verizon, they're quasi-monopolies. Mm -hmm. But outside of their broadband product, I think the video product is highly at risk. It's probably their lowest profit product, but their highest revenue generator. Mm -hmm. And the phone, the phone business, um, you know, I'm here in New York City, an enormous percentage of the population here, I don't know what it is, 20, 30% plus, they don't even have landlines. Mm -hmm. so, and we got our phone for free, <laughs> so we don't even pay for it. So the broadband with cable seems strong, but I think there's going to be limits to how much they're going to be able to price that because it's a quasi-monopoly in many areas and a true monopoly in others, and I think the government's just not going to let them charge whatever they want because of that, and I think the video product is, is at risk. So that's kind of how, you know, that's just one industry and one example of, of how we look at things, and I think it's happening in a lot of other industries. Amazon's creating enormous challenges for for retail because of their e-commerce, you know, distribution, warehousing, et cetera. I mean, it's happening, Robert, across, everywhere. And, it, and it's almost like every business or many, many businesses are becoming commoditized. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is actually a, a good segue, I think, into getting that 30,000-foot look at, you know, at your investment philosophy, because I mean, uh, you know, you already went through a little bit there about how you assess different markets, different industries and different sectors. So, you know, now I think it's a good place to say, you know, so then what is, you know, your investment philosophy when, okay, you see that things are being disrupted, you know, now where do you go? What, what do you look for? Well, when we start, when we start looking at things, we do lots of different screens and there's many six, seven hundred companies um, that we follow. And what varies, Robert, is the breadth and depth of knowledge I have on, on those companies. And some I really, really know well. I followed very, very closely for 30 years. Others I might have followed for 10. But what varies is the breadth and depth. And a lot of those we generate through screens. I read Value Line, the regular investment survey, and then the small mid-cap survey. Um, and I've been reading those forever. So we create a database both on our file server and in my head and with my colleagues of companies that, that we think are really terrific and, and so forth. But the things we look for are, some of the questions we say to ourselves are, where will this company, you know, what is the likelihood that this company's business model is going to be sustainable in around three to five years from now? Mm -hmm. um, you know, can they survive? What are the challenges they're facing? 
we then look at management, and we try to evaluate the management team. We read the proxy, how they're paid. We say to ourselves, you know, one, are they shareholder-oriented? Two, are they good operators? Do they really know how to run this business well, the team? And three, are they, are they good capital allocators? And those three qualities are often very visible over time from the financials. You know, these guys are in the same business as everyone else, and their operating margins are 400 basis points, 1,000 basis points higher. Um, they're good capital allocators. They know when to buy back their stock, whereas many companies don't. They buy it back when it's cheap. They issue it when appropriate, when necessary, if they need to, when it's expensive. Um, they're very shareholder-oriented. A lot of their compensation is tied um, to performance. It's not just huge salaries and huge options or stock appreciation rights, et cetera. So that's the second thing uh, we look for is the management. The third is the, is the purchase price. You know, what are we paying? How do we value it? But that, that doesn't jump up at us right away unless the earlier ones do because, you know, we don't really care about the price um, if, if the others aren't really met. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't understand the business, we can't project the cash flows, we can't value it. If we can't value it, we can't buy it. Um, and so those are some of the key criteria that we look for, um, you know, in prospective investments or businesses. We like certainty and predictability. We always try to focus on the downside. Where will this business be two, three, four, five years from now? And after we do all that and we're comfortable, when we start doing the work, then we start saying, you know, when it comes to the valuation, what do we see that others don't? Because the reality is, if everyone is aware of the quality of all those items I just raised, it's going to be reflected in the price. So basically, you have to try and see things that others don't. Um, which therefore will not be reflected in the price. It's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. So that I think um, I don't want to to spoil you know your uh, your introduction to your your main uh, phrase, uh, but because I I happened to see you present at the Microcap Leadership Summit two years ago, uh, I heard it in person, and I think now is a good time to talk about that because. Um, I think that's where you might be going. So at, at the conference, you you actually your presentation was about, and I quote, differential insights. You know what, what does that mean, and then how do you apply that to your investing strategy? That's a great question. Um, what that means is, what is the company doing that is unique or different from everyone else uh, in the industry, and is it sustainable? And I can give you many examples over the years. Um, there's, you know, a lot of them. One of them, for example, at Ruane, I spent a lot of time studying progressive insurance. And we made a very sizable, it was Bill and Bob and Rick and Carly's idea. And I helped augment, the, you know, their idea with a lot of field-based research. We went down to Florida and spent a lot of time down there. And they hired three MBAs back in 1977. We interviewed two of the three. The third we couldn't because he was the current CFO. Um, and they had, those two had left um, in the late 80s, and we were doing this work in 91, 92. But Progressive is one good example, and I can give many others. And, and what's the difference? The difference was, by looking at the numbers, you could see that they earned very high returns on invested capital, very high returns on equity, much higher than virtually everyone else in the auto insurance business. 
and we wanted to understand why. And they were all non-standard at the time when we were doing the work. Now they're obviously much larger. They were a billion, two billion plus back then. Um, they're going to do probably 27 billion this year. They're number four, number three or four. They're tied or very close to Allstate and Auto. Geico's number two, and State Farm's much bigger than all of them, number one. But one of the things that was really unique and different, they hired really talented um, graduates from the best business schools, people with physics degrees, et cetera. They applied that knowledge and that intellect in a variety of ways, seeking um, unique ways to, to, to score uh, the likelihood of someone having an accident. So even back in the 70s and 80s, they were thinking outside the box. What criteria should we be looking at to evaluate the probability that Paul or Joe or Michelle is going to have a car accident? Mm-hmm. So whether it's credit scoring or distance to your job or how much you drive or the type of car or your gender um, or your age, they were looking at a variety of variables far ahead of many of their competitors. And so they've created a culture of truly being forward-thinking, creative, and, and mathematically-driven, logarithmic-driven, algorithmic-driven, etc. And that capability, I think, still applies today. Mm. Um, in terms of how they look at, at auto insurance. And so my point is, are they perfect? No. Do they make mistakes? Yes. But in my mind, from all the companies we studied, and there's many very good companies out there, State Farm, Allstate, they're all very good companies, but none that I studied had that unique differential culture that Progressive had in that particular area. Mm. So that's one example. Another one, um, and there's many of them, Another one was United Healthcare. We were looking at the HMO business back in the 90s, and it was certainly a lot smaller than today. And my colleague Andy Nieder and I, we traveled the country. We met, you know, Abramson, Len Abramson at U.S. Healthcare in Philadelphia, and Dan Crowley at Foundation Health in Sacramento, and Len Schaefer at WellPoint, and Cigna, and Aetna, and you name it. We, we tried to meet with all the big guys. We met with physician practice groups. Uh, FICOR down in Nashville and Joe Hutz and on and on. And, and finally, we made our way up to uh, Minneapolis. Um, and there were a couple companies up there. George Halverson was running health healthcare partners or health partners. I don't remember the exact name. He wrote a great book that we read. Um, he ultimately later on became the CEO of Kaiser. Um, and then there was the, the team at United Healthcare, Bill McGuire and his team. And here's what was unique. In doing all the work, they all had unique and different models. Uh, U.S. Healthcare had a very low medical loss ratio. They were very dominant in the Philadelphia area, primarily with HMOs. Uh, the Freedom Plan, which United ultimately bought, and Steve Wiggins had the had a PPO, which was more flexible and more expensive, and they, they had garnered meaningful success here in New York and elsewhere. So every one of them was unique and different. But here's what jumped out at me. A little bit, but not enough for me to be smart enough to exploit it. When we met with all these companies, many of them were focused on, especially the big insurance guys, they were focused on actuarial tables and math. What's the medical loss ratio? You know, what's the cost of this service? How much are we making, et cetera? What's our SG&A? And when I met with United Healthcare and the team there, 
they were unique. And what they were doing is they were looking at healthcare needs and saying to themselves, well, what are the healthcare needs, you know, of, of, of our country, of our demographic here, of our patients? And then they would go on and build businesses around those healthcare needs. Mm-hmm. And that's what created what today is an incredible juggernaut. That, and it was led by Bill McGuire, that's what created their three Optum businesses. And today, the three Optum businesses, they have Optum Insight, which is the old Ingenics, which is their data-driven business. Mm-hmm. They have the Optum RX, which is their pharmaceutical benefit manager, the number three in the country. And then they have the regular Optum business, which has a whole, uh, a whole group of ancillary healthcare businesses, behavioral, and a whole bunch of others. So they now have three very large 60, 70 billion in revenue businesses that are segregated, essentially. Now, they're intertwined, but they're separate in terms of the way they're run from the traditional managed care businesses, Medicare, Medicaid, commercial, et cetera. And so my point is, had I been smart enough, and I wasn't, to recognize that, that was a unique differential insight. It was all in my interview. So when I compared all the interviews I did, looking back in hindsight, no one else thought the way United did. And the irony is, here we are, almost 30 years later, 25 years later, everyone's doing what United started doing 30 years ago. They're, you know, CVS, Express Scripts, you know, Caremark, CVS bought Caremark, the PBM. Now you're looking, you know, Aetna and Cigna are, are looking to get into the PBM business. I mean, United did this 30 years ago, 25 years ago, and that's an example. Now, we corrected the mistake, uh, Robert, of years ago when we started buying United Healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't make you know, enormous amounts of money like we would have had we bought it in the early mid-'90s, but we've done very, very well mm-hmm. um, you know, buying it, and, and precisely for that reason. And one time, one period that jumps out at me, um, and I don't recall if we piled in then, um, so don't quote me on this, but I just remember that I did a presentation for Manual of Ideas back in January of 13, and the stock was at 52, and they had a billion shares outstanding, so the, the market cap was 52 billion. And we just felt that Optum Insight, Optum RX, and the other Optum businesses were all worth a lot of money. Um, we thought they were probably worth 20 to 30 billion of the 52. Um, and so you could have bought the stock back then at 52, and I think it's 260, 270, 280 today. Um, and so, you know, that's one example of differential insights. But again, you know, the, the challenge is finding these unique insights and then really having the courage, Robert, to exploit them on behalf of your clients by buying the stock. And it's a lonely, it's lonely because right. no one else is doing it, and that's why it's cheap. So, you know, can you really find those unique differential insights and then really have the courage to step up and make the investment? Well, let me those ask, are two examples. So let me ask you a question then. I mean, is because to me, it, it sounds like differential insights has almost a, a disruptive nature to it. You know, it's like they, they could be synonymous, you know, is there but but I noticed that you're specific in not saying that you know, the way that they, you know, brought in, like how Progressive brought in the, the you know, uh, uh, different people to help create their, their value models and, 
you know, how United was doing things a little bit differently. You're specific to not say that it was disruptive. You know, so what is that difference between differential insights and then saying that a company is disrupting an industry or has a disruptive business model? That's a great question. I would say that disruptive is a subset from the far broader meaning of differential insights. And what I mean by that is differential insight does not only mean disruptive. It can be disruptive. What I really mean is, it's a tra- it, it often is, in the two examples I gave, it's traditional businesses or businesses that are operating in an industry that's been around a little. Now, the managed care business certainly wasn't around forever, but Progressive was mm-hmm. and auto insurance was. Um, even though they were mostly non-standard, which was not really, you know, the, as commonplace as traditional standard. But the point is, both of those companies were mainstream companies, but they thought differently. Mm. They had a mindset that was unique and different uh, from the majority, from virtually every one of their competitors or the industry at large. So when I say differential insights, it can mean a lot of things. One of them is they could be a disruptor, but it doesn't have to be a disruptor. And the examples I gave were traditional companies, legacy companies that thought and behaved and, more importantly, acted on that thought differently from everyone else. So it's a broader, when I say differential insight, it's a broader category than just a disruptor. When I think of disruptor, rightly or wrongly, Robert, and again, I'm open to a better understanding and a better definition, I think of someone that's just beginning or new to an industry and applies a different thought process or creativity and and exploits an opportunity in a more in a unique or different way from the legacy companies like Netflix for example coming out of nowhere um, and 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 really revolutionizing streaming videos creating their own content as opposed to traditional linear programming from the networks and from cable mm-hmm. so you know that can be one but it doesn't have to be i think differential insights can be far broader mm-hmm. i would i would actually go along with that i think that makes a lot of sense but by the way before i keep going uh for full disclosure are you a shareholder in i believe uh netflix progressive and or uh united healthcare i do not we do not own any netflix um and i can talk about that we we are shareholders on behalf of our clients for in progressive and united health and have been for many years and netflix is a great example Robert, of, of where, you know, I'm perhaps flawed. And that is, I think Reed Hastings is a genius. I think what he's done is extraordinary. I, I think I read, I'm not sure about this, but that he was, he started the business or partly because he was so upset about paying late fees to maybe Blockbuster mm-hmm. or, or, you know, and he created, you know, they would mail, mail videos to people and they could send them back and, and so forth. His ability to take that model and then convert it to video streaming and what they've accomplished at Netflix is simply mind-boggling. And I give him enormous credit. My feeling was uh, I was always concerned that they couldn't control their distribution. They had to rely on four, five, six cable operators or, or, or Verizon or AT&T uh, to provide their distribution. Um, and now with net neutrality, you know, 
gone by the wayside by the FCC, you worry about that because they could really say, look, you're accounting for 70% of our consumption on, on, on Saturday nights and we're going to raise your rates. So I always worried about that, even more so now. And the second thing is, it seemed to me that they really didn't have a unique and special offering. They were buying all their content. And the providers of that content, every time it was time to renew, would raise prices. Mm -hmm. And then they got big enough, um, again, credit to read, they created, started creating their own unique differential product. Mm -hmm. But I was never really willing to make the bet that they're going to keep coming up with great product and be able to entice people to keep coming in. And, you know, even today, I certainly haven't done a lot of work on it, so I'm not that knowledgeable, but I don't think they generate a lot of free cash, uh, if any, and I think they spend an enormous amount both on their own own created content and purchase content, and a lot of the purchase content is over time is going to dry up Mm -hmm. because the content providers aren't going to sell it to them. They're going to do it themselves. So having said all that, I never had, and, and I'm wrong. It illustrates, you know, a flaw perhaps, but I just never gained the comfort in investing in it. And had you invested in it, you'd have done very, very well. But I just wasn't comfortable. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really bother me mm-hmm. that I never invested because it's still not clear to me. Mm-hmm. But having said that, I would say Reed is a genius. Right. Well, you know, based on a few of the examples and what you've discussed so far, into, oh, Sorry. No, go ahead. And we don't own Netflix. I want to clarify that. So gotcha. we don't. Gotcha. Never did. Gotcha. So the the thing that, you know, in, in that definition, when you were talking about differential insights, you know, that must require a lot of due diligence. I mean, it's easy to see if one company's outperforming their competition. Okay, good. But you wouldn't know that how they were doing that unless you went in and you did a lot more due diligence and, and primary research. And again, at when I saw you speak two years ago, that is something you spoke about. I think that was actually what you spoke about the most <laughs> at, the, at the conference is your research process. So, you know, for you, what, what does your due diligence process look like? What we try to do is just think creatively. And we do the standard stuff, but there's so many people out there that are smart, very, very smart people that you're competing against, many probably a lot smarter than I am and our team. And so... We just think doing the numbers, you know, we do the standard stuff. You know, I told you what we read, and we read the, all the magazines, the Barron's, the Journal, Financial Times, New York. We read all that, We all the industry-specific stuff, Fortune Forbes and value lines, all the, a lot of the value line stuff. And we get ideas from friends and, 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 and just observing the world. So we do all that. We, we subscribe to some industry-specific publications to give us a broader perspective on an industry, and and then we read the company financials and so forth. And then after we do all that um, and, and rip apart the numbers and, you know, do we understand the business, et cetera, look at the competitor annuals, we then say talk, try and talk to competitors, customers, consultants in the industry, people that have followed the industry for a long time, external to all the numbers, uh, et cetera. And then we say to ourselves, what one, two, three, four, five people on the planet really we do we think have a unique knowledge and a unique insight or unique insights into the industry to give us differential insights. And so then what we'll try and do is we'll try and go meet them in person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now we've done this for a long time, so a lot of people we don't have to meet in person anymore because we know them. 
But there's a lot of examples, and one of them, Robert, was many, many years ago during that newspaper period I was talking about, 03, 04, 05, 06, um, in looking at all the advertising data, I saw that the billboard industry, um, and I don't remember the exact number, was seven, eight, nine, ten billion. But it, at that time, when I was doing the research, it had only two down years, mm-hmm. the early 70s um, and, and during the, the 2001, 9-11, uh, terrible time frame. And I thought, wow, that is a pretty resilient industry. I should dig further. So we read, you know, the Lamar, they were public. We looked at CBS Outdoor, which was part of CBS at the time, and um, Lamar's a REIT now, and CBS Door, uh, Outdoor obviously is in a different space, different way. And then Clear Channel, um, Clear Channel Outdoor, owned by the Mays family. I think TPG was there at the time. And um, so we studied them, and then we studied some of the private companies that are out there. In fact, I met with one or two private companies that are in the space. And we called the Outdoor Advertising Association in Washington and got all the literature and we studied it. But then beyond that, reading competitors, public, private, then beyond that, I said to myself, you know, who can really give us insight? So I was out in California visiting with clients and and I said, you know, this is a great place to try and meet some advertising people. And I met a gentleman who used to work for Carl Eller. Hmm. And he said, you know, Paul, you should call and go meet Carl. He really knows the industry. He sold, I think it was Eller Media to uh, Clear Channel, and um, he's a legend in the business. And I worked for him for 20 years or so. So I did. And he was in Phoenix in Scottsdale, and it turns out that our oldest son was going to University of Arizona, and the business school is named after Carl, the Eller College of Management. So ironically, you know, it was interesting. I went out and met with him. I think he was 80 years old at the time. He's probably 90 or more today. Wonderful man. Um, terrific human being. And very, very smart. And he gave me, Robert, 50 years of insights into the billboard industry. He graduated from the University of Arizona, I believe, in 1952. And he started selling billboards. So, I mean, I mean, he knew everybody. He knew the whole industry. I knew, you know, I knew the numbers. I knew the public stuff. I knew some private companies I spoke with. I had done as much research as I could. I knew the industry data. I knew all that, but he was able to really shed enormous light. Um, and you know, and he'd been out of the industry for a while, but he grew up in it. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he knew the key players. He knew who he admired. He knew what the different strategies were. He talked about the industry and how it had changed. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so that's what we try and do. Um, that's a perfect example of the kind of thing that we try and do. So I remember there was also some levels to it as well, you know, so one part was, you know, talking to experts in the industry that you're, you're looking at to get a better understanding about where it's going and, and, and to see who the big players are, who the competition, but maybe in terms of when you're actually evaluating the, actually, no, there was one part of your presentation that I love where you actually went and you go and talk to former CEOs of competitors, you know, and, and former CFOs. I mean, you know, so maybe even speak more at length to the breadth of, of research that you go and do. You, you even spoke a little bit earlier, too, about, you know, your field-based research. You know, so what, what does all of that look like? Yeah, I just, you know, look, there's so many talented and smart people out there that, that it's really, really hard. I mean, Mr. Buffett has done it. Well, I'm not as smart as Mr. Buffett. I'm never going to be as smart as Mr. Buffett. You know, I can't just read the numbers 
and see what he sees. Um, I just think sitting in an office all day is great. And reading, I try to read four, five, six, seven hours a day, seven days a week. That's all great. But a lot of people can do that. And there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me. So at the end of the day, I think you've got to get out there and go into the field and meet with people. And, and, and really, and the reason you do that is twofold. You do that primarily, or we do, to prevent permanent capital loss. We don't want to lose permanent capital. We understand there's volatility. Stock prices go up and down, and certainly it's, it's stomach churning when they go down. But we, we can live with that. Um, but we don't want to have permanent capital loss. So we do it for that, to really gain a, a clearer understanding and bringing the numbers and the people to life, people that really have been in the in, in the in the business. And the second is it gives us greater conviction to make a bigger investment. Now, Bill, Rick, and, and, and the team at Ruain, you know, they would make bigger bets than I would. Um, we have a little bit of a different business. We, we, we run fixed income as well as equities. They ran exclusively equities. And Bill um, would concentrate much more than I would. I like to own 10 to 20 stocks, which is still pretty concentrated. Bill liked to own six and seven and eight. Um, and I'm just not as smart as Bill, so I won't do that. Plus, we have, you know, we have a different model for our business than, than, and than they did. You know, we, we manage large portions of many of our company's wealth, so I wouldn't concentrate just as much as him. But my point is, at the end of the day, I think going out and talking to someone who's been in an industry for 30 years, even if he's been retired for three, we don't care about next week's earnings or next month's earnings. We just want them to give us color on the industry, how it's evolved, who the key people are, um, who they admired, what competitor was the toughest, um, what were the biggest challenges in the industry, you know, those types of things. And we don't care if they've been gone for two or three or four years. That really provides a lot of insight and color to, like I said, bring the numbers to life and bring the people to life. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, my next question is, you know, for let most of my audience, a lot of them are individual investors who, you know, they, they may want to do more primary research, but they may not have the same resources as you do, you know, so what are some cost effective solutions for them to gain a similar edge? Um, they might not have the resources to travel as much. So if you can find, you know, former people or industry experts or consultants or whatever, just, you know, call them, be open and honest, tell them exactly what you're doing. You know, I've evalu I'm evaluating, we're, we're evaluating this industry and these companies, and it seems that this company's really terrific, and you were there for 15 years or 18 years or You've been a consultant in this industry for 20 years. I'd really love the opportunity to set up a call at your convenience and, and speak to you about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so one, you, you might not be able to travel and go see them, so try and do it over the phone. Now, I will tell you, the phone is fine, but it's always better in person if they get to meet you and trust you and know you. And what I'll do is I'll send them literature in our firm and some of my year-end letters so they can read them and see what we do. Um, but that doesn't mean the phone doesn't work. It's just I think it's better, but if you can't afford to, that's fine. So that's one way. Another way, another way is reading voraciously, and a lot of these experts are quoted. 
In fact, that's one of the way when you when you when you do a literature search, um, and it's a lot easier now than it was 20, 30 years ago. A lot of these experts' names come up when you're studying an industry or you're studying a particular business, and so read what they've said, um, and that can source also stimulate. Um, you know, a call uh, and, and trying to get them to speak to you, you know, say, look, every time I'm, I'm looking in, out for this industry or trying to identify key issues in this industry, your name keeps coming up. So, you know, so that's another way. Try and read as much as you can about some of the industry-specific or company-specific things. Those are two good, uh, easier ways, cost-effective ways to get more knowledgeable uh, without doing exactly what we do. Right. So my, my next question then is, you know, and this is, this also you spoke about in that same presentation. I'm going to put a link to your, the presentation from the, the 2016 talk. But, um, you know, after you've done all your due diligence, you've, or, or at first you sussed out what companies you actually want to do the due diligence on, you go out and do the due diligence, you know, how do you then evaluate your downside risk? You know, where what's that barometer look like? Like, okay, this is, goes right here on my risk scale or, you know, this I can handle, but this I can't. You know, what does that look like? You know, interestingly, um, a lot of people might say it's the valuation. You pay a lower price, multiple of earnings, multiple of EBIT, multiple of EBITDA, however you look at it. Um, and that's one way. But, you know, ironically, we don't really begin there. We begin at a simpler level, and it comes down to, again, where will this business, what is the certainty, you know, as Mr. Buffett says, of where this business will, will be? The certainty with which the long-term economic characteristics of the business can be evaluated is what Mr. Buffett would say, and that's in one of his, that's in a 93 annual letter. And so that's what we look at. And my point is, if we don't have a good, clear idea of what the economics of that business will be going forward. Now, look, you can't know everything. You just can't. But, you know, is this business at risk? Do you think this uh, company or this business or this industry is providing a service or a product that's going to be wanted and needed and won't be disrupted? Do you think this will be around in three, four, five years? Um, that's how we start. And if we look out two, three, four, five, six years, and it's not really reasonably clear to us that they're going to be around, we simply throw it in the too hard pile. So that's one way we try to reduce risk. And that is, you know, what's, going to, what's this business going to look like in a few years? And that's become an even more important question today. Another thing is we, we look at balance sheets. We always start with balance sheets. If a company doesn't have a good balance sheet, we almost always throw it away and, and put it in the too hard pile because you need a hefty balance sheet so that you can weather the financial challenges, um, the operating challenges and the financial challenges that might come about in a recession or in a difficult environment. Another thing we do is we look at companies during very challenging and difficult times. So just like you should evaluate a money manager, one of the things you should do when you evaluate a money manager, look at 1987, look at 1990, look at 1994, look at 99 to, to 2000, 2001 and 2002, the market was down 2000, 2001, 2002. Look at 2008 um, or the fall of 07 to the spring of 09 when the S&P declined almost 60%. See how they respond to risk. And we do that with companies. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we don't focus on the stock price as much. We look at what did they do during really difficult periods in their industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another mechanism we look at to get an understanding of, you know, can they survive difficult times? What happens? Mm-hmm. We look at managements. How are they allocating capital? When, when they're bringing in free cash, are they spending money? Are they buying back stock in 08, 09? Or are they terrified to do it then? And they're buying back their stock in 2015 and 16 when the price is six times what it was in 2008 or 2009. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the things that we try and look for. But I, I just want to point out, it's not just financially related. Right. It's not just the numbers. It goes beyond that because there's a lot of other thing, things that you, can, that you can look at that indicate risk. And, and one of the things I also do and others do the same thing, as I say to myself, I always like devil's advocate. So me and my colleagues and many friends I have in the business, I say, shoot holes through this argument. Uh, play devil's advocate. What am I missing here? Why isn't this a good business? What could happen to this business? What's the downside risk? How could they be disrupted? How easy would it be to disrupt them? As Mr. Buffett says, if I had $5 billion, what could I do to them? Um, and so those are additional things, you know, that I, that I try to, you know, look at and say, I, I, I just find it very valuable to constantly challenge yourself. But you have to be careful with that, because while you never want to be overconfident um, ever and arrogant, that's a disaster in this business. You never want to be overconfident and arrogant, but by the same token, you don't want to be so nervous and scared with all these risks that you're assessing that you never pull the trigger. So it's a balancing act. It's a balancing act to make sure you stay humble, thoughtful, and careful, but not afraid. Well, that leads into my next question that was probably my favorite line from your presentation. And you said, and I quote, valuation is truly an art form, end quote. What, what is the roadmap then to becoming the best valuation artist you can be? You know, that is really, the reality is, with the exception of certain firms out there that, that are great with, you know, mathematical probabilities and trade that way, I just don't do that. I, I, I believe in the numbers and then the qualitative dovetailed on top of the numbers. And when I say it's an art, with rare, I mean, there are a few companies, obviously, that are able to just look at numbers and do all these detailed uh, analytical things that, you know, I'm just not capable of, and they can find discrepancies and do very well. There's very, very few, by the way, that I know of. Um, and maybe there's many others that I'm not aware of. That's certainly possible. But there's very few that can do that. You know, for us, for us, we really think that it's truly an art, and just doing analytical work for us, just doing valuation work or doing, doing spreadsheets and models, it's for me and our team, it's just not enough to give us, you know, the kind of insights and, 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 and valuation capabilities that we really want when we're looking at an, a business within an industry. So we think the qualitative are really, really important. And the qualitative creates what I call a portion of the art form. The quantitative are really easy to do. Certainly there's people like Mr. Buffett and others that are better analytically than others. But beyond that, you've got to have these insights 
on the qualitative side. Um, and it's the ability to see around corners. It's the ability to see things that others don't see. And that's all an art form. I don't know. I think you can get better at it, but I don't know if it's something that's really teachable. I think it comes from just working and working and working, and occasionally you get one of these unique insights by working really hard. And the harder you work, oftentimes the more insights um, that you get. So when I say it's an art form, I'm just simply saying I just don't think in successful and very good value investing is possible to by just doing spreadsheets and models and the numbers. Mm-hmm. I think the qualitative is really, and the qualitative requires a creative mind and an ability to think outside the box and say, you know, this company, they're different. Here's what they're doing, and no one else seems to be doing that. What does that really mean? How does that translate into a unique advantage for them? Or can that translate into a unique advantage? Because what's happening today, Robert, it used to be that book value tangible assets, factories, equipment, were really the the large predictor or large driver of stock prices and values. It's not the case today. Um, 70, 80, 90% of values in many cases today are intangibles. And so it's almost getting to the point where people and intellectual capital are far, far more important than ever. So it's like the company with the best people that has the most creative, adaptive, flexible, and open culture is the company that's going to win. And that's very different from 20, 30 years ago where, you know, having a broadcast license or having a cable license for that area or a newspaper monopoly it, it's it's all that is falling by the wayside, mm-hmm. and now it's coming down to which companies think outside the box, are truly creative, and are able to take that creativity and and funnel it through lots and lots of people. And the bigger you get, the harder that is to do. Mm-hmm. But that's really in my mind, that's really, if you can identify companies that are able to do that, attract and keep really flexible thinking, creative, adaptive employees, those are the companies that are really going to succeed in the future. You know, that ties back to the very beginning of the interview where I asked you, you know, how are things pretty much different today? And you you just hit the nail on the head and and you see that where as an investor, you know, I think 25, 30 years ago, we weren't asking about, oh, well, maybe some were, but most investors weren't asking, so what's the company culture like? Or, or that things like that didn't matter as much as they do today. You know, are you seeing the same things? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think company culture matters more than ever. And, and it's primarily driven by what I said earlier, intellectual capital, uh, intangibles mm-hmm. are really the driver of business values and stock market values in many ways. It's not the old plant and equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the end of the day, it's really all about the people. Mm-hmm. 
And people are becoming, people are always critical, but it's becoming even more important, the quality and type of people that you have. Not only creative and thoughtful and forward-thinking, but risk management-oriented, careful with their balance sheets, the ability to let other people flourish and develop and grow and give them the appropriate credit, both publicly, privately, and financially. I mean, it's a challenge. I mean, managing intangible assets, people, is re- and being great at it, is really, really hard. It's not like, Robert, a machine. Mm-hmm. A machine doesn't, you don't have to worry about the machine. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge. So then, you know, what, what would you say differentiates your investment? Because, you know, look, the a lot of value investors will say that they also do a good amount of qualitative due diligence. You know, um, there are a few that can really are more analytical that can look at the quantitative and, and come up with their thesis and go from there. You know, but um, a lot a lot of investors and, and fund managers will say that they have a balance of this qualitative and quantitative. You know, so for you, what, what differentiates your investment thesis than from other value investors? I think it goes back to doing the competitive analysis in consulting um, 30 over 30 years ago that really got me thinking about moats and competitive models and what makes one business unique versus another, which, as I said, I got lucky to go work at a terrific consulting firm at the time and terrific people that I learned an enormous amount from. Um, really, really a, a special, wonderful, blessed place that I learned a lot. But I would also add to that, it's not just, you know, the competitive analysis and so forth. The other component of that, in addition to the field-based research and the quantitative work and the qualitative, et cetera, the other major component that a lot of people don't focus on, and very few have this privilege, and we try to get it, and that is you need a client base that will allow you the privilege to be patient, disciplined, and to exploit really long-term opportunities. Mm. And Mr. Buffett is a great example of that. He doesn't have clients. So he has $111 billion in float, I think. Um, and at the end of the day, he has the enormous privilege to sit around and only do things that really are compelling, that he fully understands, and that make total sense to him. In defense of a lot of money managers, mutual fund managers, hedge fund managers, and others, they don't have that luxury. A lot of the money comes from third parties. They don't have direct relationships with their clients. And the moment they don't perform, the money leaves. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, they're not allowed to have meaningful cash allocations. Because people will say, well, I can do cash. I gave you the money to invest. So uh, an important point, at least from our perspective, thus far, we've been enormously blessed with a found, you know, incredible foundation of clients that allow us that privilege of trusting us, our team, and our research process to not say, okay, Paul, 70% I want in stock, 30% in fixed income. That's, that's a good allocation that we've come to together. That's 70% in stock. I may say to them, Robert, it may take a year or meaningfully longer to fill that 70% stock allocation. If you're not comfortable with that, 
don't give us the money. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I, we, we could not be doing what we're doing without that critical foundational um, capability. Gotcha. So, you know, you went through a few investing experiences that it, you could obviously tell that uh, affected and guided your investing strategy. But I want to know that what was that that one experience? You know, you can name the company or not, just, you know, either way is fine. But, you know, what, what was that one experience that guided your investing strategy the absolute most? What happened was when I was at Ruane, Kniff, uh, and Goldfarb, I would do a lot of the field work and we would, we would go visit all the competitors um, before we'd go visit the target company. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the research that we did, um, we were looking at a particular company in, in, in the financial services area. And uh, they had two businesses, uh, credit cards um, was one of them and consumer finance was another. And so we did a, a detailed analysis of all the credit card companies and of all the consumer finance companies. And I did it along with my colleague, Andy Nieder, and he took the consumer finance companies and I took the credit card companies. And in the process, we met with all these companies. We talked to competitors, customers, et cetera. I came across a company that I thought was really unique. He was trying to hire the best people. He was trying to really build a unique institution in the credit card space. And an example was we went and met a supplier to the credit card industry of various products and services. And they said to us, you know, we said to them, who do you really admire? Who doesn't buy your product? Because we read that everyone's buying it. And they said, almost everyone does. But this one company doesn't. And the reason they won't buy it, they tell us, is they don't want to buy an off-the-shelf product. They're using their internal data to create their own proprietary database that's not available to everyone else. And I just thought, I mean, Robert, that is an incredible example of what I'm describing. So when I went and met that CEO, that was one of the first questions I asked him. Why don't you buy this product from so-and-so company? And he told me exactly what they had told me. And that's when I started thinking, wow. And so I was maybe 32 or 33 years old at the time at Ruane, and we were studying to purchase another company. But this came up in the research, and I invested personal money in that. And a few years later, not that long later, it was acquired. And in fact, one of my fellow partners called me from Ruane to tell me that they were being bought because I was traveling. And so that was a, a... what I would call one of the moments when I started realizing we really, I saw something different beyond the numbers that really gave me insight into that company. And that was, that, that's, that's someone that jumps out. There's a couple others, but that's one of them. So then, you know, my, my last question that I have for you, um, you know, what, what, what advice then do you have for uh, new investors, new microcap investors that, you know, either want to learn more or just become better investors? You know, I think the world of Ian, Ian Castle at, at, at microcap, and I think what they're doing is, is really terrific. And I think in the microcap space, just be aware there are more meaningful risks because of the size of the enterprise, 
maybe the lack of durability, fewer products and services, more dependent on one or two people, less geographic diversity. If you can gain a comfort level with those greater risks, the same uh, analytical skills of financial analysis, the quantitative and the qualitative apply in the microcap space and maybe the qualitative matter even more because at the end of the day you you have the capability with a microcap even as an individual investor my guess is a lot of those people will, companies CEOs will talk to you mm-hmm. you know you're not going to be able to pick up the phone and call and call you know United Health you know um, he's not going to pick up the phone and talk to you so I think the applicability of field-based work, phone interviewing, and doing qualitative work is even more interesting and appealing and more important in the microcap space. So I would say if you're a microcap investor, um, you know, I just mentioned the risks are greater, so are the rewards. If you can identify a truly visionary leader who really, really is passionate and loves, you know, the company, the, the, the customers that they're serving, and really has a passion for it and pays himself, you know, meets all the criteria I talked about, truly unique, exceptional leaders. That's um, an opportunity to really, really do very well. That is, uh, you got me fired up. I'm ready to go. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, so Paul, uh, we're rounding the bend here and I, I've, I have so many more questions, but I think, uh, I think we'll leave it here. So, you know, where can my audience go and find more information about you and, and learn more about uh, your insights and what you have to say? We have a website that um, that's been around for a long time, but I haven't updated it. There's some older interviews and other things on there. But they can go to the website, www.lounces.com. They can also email um, some of my colleagues at info. I think it's on the website, info at lounces.com. Um, and we'll always try and respond as best we can. Um, and there's some people we put, you know, we put people on our mailing list for our year-end letter. I do two letters a year. The mid-year one is typically very short, but the year-end one is typically 20, 30, 40 pages. I want our clients to know exactly what we're doing. So if you email info at lounces.com, um, you know, we'd be happy to put you on the mailing list. If, if possible, I think uh, I'm going to throw my name in there to, to go on that mailing list as well. That's fine. We'd be happy to. <laughs> so, Paul, again, thank you so much for your time, and this was, uh, this was really fun. Thank you. I really appreciated the opportunity, and um, thank you very much for all your time and your very thoughtful questions. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and thank you, Paul, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast, go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast, or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast, where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.